Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. We tape on Mondays, and we had major news on Monday as Michigan's John Beeline leaves the Wolverines after 12 seasons to become the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, sending shockwaves through the Big Ten, college basketball, and even the NBA. We'll be joined momentarily by Brendan Quinn, who covers Michigan for The Athletic. After that, joined by two coaches who got burned badly by Virginia on their chase to the national championship, Purdue's Matt Painter in an epic Elite Eight matchup in Louisville, and then Bruce Pearl of Auburn, Lost to the Cavaliers in the national semifinal in Minneapolis. That's all coming up here on March Madness 365. But let's get right to Brendan Quinn and the news of the day of the week. Michigan's John Beeline off to Cleveland. And joining me here on March Madness 365, Brendan Quinn from The Athletic, who covers all things Michigan, Michigan State, and, of course, the national college basketball scene as well. And so, Brendan, I want to have you on because uh, you have covered this Michigan program extensively uh, what was your initial reaction to the news that John Beeline had decided this time to go to the NBA and take the job with the Cavaliers? So I wasn't surprised as much at his decision to go to the league. I was maybe more surprised that he got the offer. Um, 66 years old. He had a, a heart procedure last summer. Um, that came after his kind of his waltz with the Pistons. Um, I, I, I just wondered if he was kind of past the point where he might get a head job offer in the league. And, um, but in terms of him actually choosing to do this, no, I mean, he's always been a guy who's chased the challenge that's in front of him. And, um, you know, yeah, you could argue maybe he has the challenge left of winning a title at Michigan, but as you know, as most people close to the game, know, you can't, you can't stay somewhere because you want to just win a national championship. It's there's too many variables at play. He wants to, take his X's and put them against the best O's and you got to do that in the league. So, you know, if not now, never. The program that he took over versus the program that is now, how would you compare Michigan? Uh, I mean, night and day um, when, when he took the job initially, he was walking into a place that uh, it was 2007. They hadn't made the NCAA tournament since 98. Uh, they were still kind of, stuck in the muck of the the fab five ed martin era around michigan basketball and all the turmoil and controversy around that it was a place that um had deteriorated facilities and the school put the money in and and it was just kind of one of those perfect um marriages of of character and coaching ability versus uh university and commitment to the program all those things came together in 12 years um you know, you saw the saw the results: nine NCAA tournaments, two NCAA, uh, two national championship game appearances, winning his th- uh, coach and program history. Brennan, you know, I, I think Ward Manuel has a tall mm-hmm. task just because it's very difficult to replace John Beeline, but he also has one of the best programs in the country now, as you just stated. I mean, it's top three in the Big Ten, and it's top, I think it's top ten in the country. And and look, I'm gonna 
there are going to be a million names out there, but I'm going to rattle off some here. And then I'm specifically interested on a couple from you. You know, like I think obviously if you could get Billy Donovan, go after him. I don't know if he's ready to leave, if he ever will leave the NBA circles. It's the same reason why I question if Brad Stevens will ever go back to college basketball. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jay Wrights of the world, the Villanova, you just won two national championships there. Uh, he's got it rolling. He runs the place, basically. I think his next move is the NBA. I think there are candidates like, you know, that that could be enticed by this, even though they're very comfortable. You know, whether it's Bray at Notre Dame, Mike Bray or Ed Cooley at Providence, Kevin Willis, you know, all these are all guys I think, you know, could, maybe would. But I'm very interested in your, your opinion on three names that are off that John Beeline tree. One is Laval Jordan, who coached under him at, uh, at Michigan. He's the head coach at Butler. And then the two assistants, Sadie Washington and Luke Yaklich, who in various ways have been, you know, have held a lot of responsibility there. As you know, Washington sure. on that trip to Spain last year. He was sort of the de facto head, at least the, the spokesperson. And Yaklich has been that defensive guru behind the scenes that certainly gets a lot of credit for you know, the way things have transitioned in a positive way defensively over the last couple of years. What do you think of those three guys? Yeah, we'll start with Laval because, you know, he was always kind of on the trajectory to be an kind of heir apparent as he goes out and tested himself. Uh, he had one year at um, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then the two years at Butler. I'm not sure if he's done enough in his three years as a head coach to warrant going from Butler to Michigan. I mean, I think if you put it this way, if you take out – you know, the, the, the John Beeline coaching tree side of things. Is anyone talking about Laval Jordan as a candidate? Um, no. He went six, he's 16 and 20 in two years in the Big East at Butler, and they're coming off their second losing season since 2005. Everyone likes Laval at Michigan, and he's from the state, and he does have that tutelage under Beeline, but, you know, I, has he done anything to, to warrant getting this job? I'm not, I'm not sure he's had uh, an opportunity. He's at a big time place in Butler. I think you'd like to see probably a little bit more meat on that resume. Um, and then it, 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 as far as the two assistants go, I'd be a little bit surprised if Ward manual hires someone with zero head coaching experience, unless it's like something like Juwan Howard or something like that. Um, this is a big time job. Um, you know, Luke Yaklich, to everyone, you know, he's this kind of become this defensive force whisperer. But, um, you know, he's still been at Michigan for two years. But he was five years at Illinois State before that. And before that, he was a high school coach. Um, you know, I, I don't know how realistic that is either. And, and Sadi, you know, 10 years at great campy staff at Oakland. He's the longest tenured staff. Uh, at Michigan or longest tenured coach on the staff at Michigan right now. So he does have that kind of feather in the cap, but um, you know, he's, he's kind of a more, he's a bit of a quiet guy. He really hasn't put himself out there as kind of a, uh, you know, out front, you know, coach, you know, kind of guy who's on the rise trying to, trying to get that job. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how realistic, he is either. I think they're all capable of being, even DeAndre Haynes, I, I think they're all capable of being very good head coaches at some point, if not now. I, I just wonder if if Ward Manuel is ready to make that kind of gamble um, when on a program that's going the way Michigan is. You know, this is, like you said, top three in the Big Ten, maybe top ten nationally. Um, handing those keys to someone that, are, that is completely inexperienced as a head coach, as the face of the program, um, that's that'd be a major major risk when you could maybe go out and get a a Mike White or go out 
and, and get someone who's kind of won games and, and, and been in the NCAA tournament. You know, you, you have to make Chris Mack say no. You have to make Beard say no, Bennett say no, Few say no, right? And, right. and then you get into that Mike White, Ed Cooley, Mike Bray, Bobby Hurley, Wojo, Steve Prom, whatever. Like, I just wonder if those are more realistic candidates than than asking either the three that, that we're talking about here. But I would say this unequivocally, it's going to be someone with no skeletons because John Beeline ran the program that way. And, you know, I'm just convinced that that's what they want to keep doing, which is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Not that there isn't a big enough pool of those candidates, but I think that's the direction that certainly Michigan will go and should go. Um, and, and I think they have time. I think it'll happen by the end of May, uh, the early entry withdrawal deadline, May 29th. So I think this will probably, you'll be busy. So everyone should uh, read your stuff uh, on the athletic, athletic.com, uh, because I think the things will move in sort of warp speed uh, over the next couple of weeks. Brennan, I appreciate it. You did a, do a tremendous job covering the sport, everything that you write, everything that you touch. And I know we'll read a lot of your your commentary on uh, John Beeline and the search going forward and whoever gets the job. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you having me. And up next on March Madness 365, Purdue's Matt Painter. And now joining me here in March Madness 365, Purdue head coach Matt Painter. And Matt, a lot to unpack here. We'll get to uh, the roster uh, but let's we, we got to still put the bow on uh, what occurred a couple of weeks ago, already now probably a month ago. But, you know, I've had many coaches for many years tell me that the hardest loss in the NCAA tournament is in the Elite Eight because we make so much, and rightfully so, about getting to the Final Four and all that, you know, is surrounding that. And you can sell it, and there's just the whole hoopla surrounding that. Um, the manner in which you lost, the way you guys played, 42 points for Carson Edwards, I mean, how long did it take you to sort of get past the way that game ended against Virginia in Louisville? Yeah, well, I don't know if you ever get past it. I think you want to you want to work to get back in that game and win that game. I think that's the that's the ultimate cure when you can you know get back there. It's just like getting beat. We got beaten back to back years in the Sweet Sixteen. We get back in that game and we're fortunate enough off a, you know, a great play by Carson Edwards to get us into overtime against Tennessee. You know, that was the ultimate cure for getting beat in the Sweet 16. That was the fifth time we've been in the Sweet 16. Um, We had lost the first four times. And so that was a great feeling for us to be able to somehow win an overtime game against a great Tennessee team. And, you know, that's what we're going to have to be able to do. It's not something that um, (laughs) you can do a whole lot about. It's um, we did some really good things. Carson Edwards beyond fantastic in the NCAA tournament. Um, it was, it was fun to, to watch. I had a great seat to watch it. And, um, you know, I felt for our guys, our guys hung in there and, you know, we won our league and we, we did some really good things and we came really close to going to final four, but, um, we're just going to use it as a, you know, a building block. We're going to use it as, you know, getting better. I feel bad for the, you know, the three guys and Grady Eifert and Ryan Klein and Carson Edwards that, you know, that aren't going to be with us now in terms of playing, um, because that's what you want. You know, you want to be able to fight like heck to get back in that spot and win it the following year. But, um, you know, that's part of college. That's part of moving on. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just happy for our guys and proud of our guys for the way they played. I was courtside. I'm going to say, I mean, I've covered every, you know, NCAA tournament since uh, dating myself. But like you were comparable ages here. I mean, and going back to 1990, 91, and, uh, um, you know, professionally, that has to be one of the top five games I've seen in the NCAA tournament. It was unbelievable to sit there and watch it, to cover it. What was it like to be a part of it? 
really in the trenches uh, for those 45 minutes? You know, obviously you get wrapped up in just moving to the next play and, and trying to score against them, you know, trying to stop them. Um, I thought in the first half, I thought we should have been in a better position going into halftime than we were. I think we were up one and a half. Um, they were so good at the start of the second half, the first 10 minutes, we couldn't guard them. They just cut so hard they got away from us. And we had a couple breakdowns, but sometimes their offense was just better than our defense. And, you know, the game was slowly starting to get away from us. And then Carson, you know, started to get hot and make some shots. And then he just kept making shot after shot. So it was just, it just seemed like it was a great offensive play after a great offensive play. And we just thought if we could get a couple stops, maybe get a break, we could put ourselves in position to win it. But it was, um, it was an unbelievable game. It was probably a better game to be a fan than it was a coach. Um, no question about that. But it, it was just, it, it was pretty cool to see our team evolve and grow and be able to go against, you know, really the nation's best team and put ourselves in position to win it. What, what I love, one last thing on this, what I love about the way regulation ended just as an, an observer was the mutual respect we saw from Carson Edwards and uh, uh, Mamadi Diakite, because there's nothing you guys could have done. I mean, that was defended. It was a fluke, unbelievable pass from Kia Clark to Diakite. I mean, he looks off Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome. It all happens in a split second. And you could see Carson just like shrugged. Is like, you know, what, what can I do? I mean, you guys tied it in an unbelievably miraculous way. Yeah, in hindsight, they, you know, they played on the same top 100 team at the NBA camp going into their senior year in high school. So I, I didn't realize that. So I just thought when I saw it later on, someone said something to me. I just thought he was looking. He didn't. And, and so I thought that was like, you know, why, why are you looking at him that way? But they obviously knew each other from that camp and they played on the same team. So yeah, that was pretty cool in hindsight. Yeah. So Carson obviously declares for the NBA draft when you were, when you recruited him, I mean, he had an unbelievable year this past year. What did you think was his potential, uh, especially three years uh, out of high school? Well, we um, started recruiting him in the spring. We had a kid decommit from us, and we we started recruiting him and, and watching him at AAU and in those weekends. And then we went into his high school, and I watched him work out and sat down and talked with him. And just, you know, he had such tight spin on his basketball. Um, he really enjoyed working out. He put in a lot of time with it wasn't something for me where we were recruiting for two to three years. We watched him in AAU. He played with really good players. He played with De'Aaron Fox. We watched film on him. And then just as his ability to, to, to get hot and score the basketball, um, you know, he, was, he wasn't your traditional point guard. You know, he was just that combo scoring guard. And I, I love guys that can shoot. When we went in there, I just said, man, he just shoots it too well. We have to go on him. Everything checked off. He had a great family. They wanted a good academic school. But I didn't really, like, wrap my head around in, in terms of, hey, this guy's going to be an All-American a sophomore and junior year. You know, you just you sign guys. You try to help them. And then once you get him, you're like, man, he's got an unbelievable knack um, to score the basketball and to be able to shoot the basketball from, you know, just distances and be in rhythm. And, and, uh, you know, he's so strong and he's bold, bow legged and he's just, you know, he's just unique. And, um, I just felt after coaching him for a while, you had to allow him to really kind of be himself as a player. And it was a little bit different than some of the other guys that you've coached. And you just had to be able to, to help him with shot selection and help him in decision-making. But there were times you got to let him go a little bit, 
um, because he can carry at those times. And um, the way he improved and the way he got better, he's a true scorer. You know, he's got a short memory. And, and so, like, when, when you're worried about it when he's 0 for 6, sometimes he's not worried about it. You know, he, he just wants the ball again and wants another opportunity. But I, I think that confidence in himself really carried over, you know, to our team, especially in some tough stretches. So you lose a lot, but there's such a strong, to use an overused word, culture there that uh, there's an expectation that you are going to win and you will continue to win. But there's still a lot returning uh, despite Klein, Edwards, and Eifert gone. I mean, Matt Harms back in the middle. Uh, the potential of Aaron Wheeler and Travion Williams and Nojel Eastern now will be a junior. Um, you know, your recruiting class uh, coming in where you've got, you know, guys I'm sure that you think will – Contribute Isaiah Thompson, Brandon Newman, Mason Gillis. How, how are you assessing uh, as you're putting these pieces back and seeing how they'll fit uh, going into next season? Yeah, you know, we had four freshmen come off the bench for us. You know, we had two sophomores start for us. Evan Boudreaux is a guy that's played a lot of basketball. He'll be back as a senior. We took a fifth-year senior in Jihad Proctor from High Point, who averaged 19 points for them. And, and, and so we have some experience. You mentioned those three freshmen. So, you know, we're excited about it. Um, I think we, we have a high skill level in terms of shooting the basketball. All three of those freshmen and Jihad Parker, um, Evan Boudreaux, those five guys that, you know, weren't a part of our, our run there at the end in terms of playing. Three of them are in high school. One was at another school. And then Evan was out of the, the lineup. They give us skill. All those guys can shoot the basketball, and that's what we've really tried to do is just kind of form our team, kind of see where we are, but also be able to have good spacing and stretch things out. So, you know, we're excited about it. You know, to have six guys in your rotation be able to return and then have a guy that was in our rotation before who was averaging eight, nine points in about half the game um, at a, you know, a really good fifth-year player along with those three freshmen, you know, we're excited about it. But I think this past team really helped us and understanding that each team is different. And if you play to your strengths and you stick together, you know, some good things can happen. So Klein and obviously Edwards were big shot makers, especially in the tournament. Uh, as of right now, and you got a lot of work to do over the, the summer and the fall, but who, who could you see being that big shot maker on this roster? Um, I don't think anybody liked that, just in terms of, you know, Ryan and uh, Carson were so good at being able to sprint and shoot. So we ran a lot of different actions for those guys. You know, you're obviously always trying to get some things in transition, but we ran a lot of different things where those guys could stretch the defense. They could make that, you know, a couple of our other guys, Eric Hunter is a, is a good scorer, but he's not a, a, a an elite three-point shooter or whatever. He's not a sprinter and a shooter like that. Sasha Stefanovic is a guy that, you know, can be able to make those shots. Aaron Wheeler is a guy that can move and, and, and shoot the basketball. Brandon Newman, one of our new kids, is, is a guy that can really shoot the ball and move. Isaiah Thompson can shoot the basketball from 25 feet and beyond. So you have a lot of different guys in there, but I think it's going to be a different group, but we're just kind of letting it kind of evolve with that. You know, I think we'll score on the interior much more next year with Matt Harms and Travion Williams, um, you know, trying to offset some things. I think those two guys could play together at times. I think Aaron Wheeler, you know, has played the four for us. And he could do that, but he also could move over to some three if we go into a bigger lineup. I'm not saying that's something we ultimately do for 40 minutes of a game, but it gives us another look. And um, so we're kind of in that waiting stage in terms of how we do here in the summer and how we do here in the fall in terms of shaping our team, in terms of you know how, how efficient we're going to be um, in certain areas. We might have to flip some things 
and, and, and be on the interior a little bit more. We might have to be more of a ball screen team. Um, I, I know this, great players bog down offense. And anytime you deal with great players, they when they get the ball, it sticks in their hands and they're going to make plays. And sometimes when you don't have that, the ball moves a little bit more. And so I think that's going to be an important piece for our team, and especially in the efficiency of offense, is just being able to move the ball, be able to execute, be able to get good action away from the basketball, and, and just have a good offensive system um, in, in trying to attack the defense when they break down. Is the schedule set, I mean, of the major games? Yeah, you know, we're waiting for the, the Gavit games should come next week, and then I think the um, ACC Big Ten Challenge should come probably in the second week of June, third week of June, something in there. And last two things, you mentioned Jihad Proctor, the transfer from High Point. You know, Matt Mooney from Texas Tech comes in from Air Force, South Dakota, helps him lead him to the national title game. Uh, The fifth year, the grad year guy. What are you looking for when you're going to add someone like that? Because clearly it has helped a lot of teams uh, most recently. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think Matt Mooney is probably an outlier um, when it comes to his role. Um, I think a lot of guys that go from low to mid-majors and go up, especially when they go to an NCAA caliber team, normally play more of a role than they do a primary role. I think that's, you know, easy to say. So I think if you can get somebody like a Matt Mooney that can come and, you know, and have a prominent role and start and play 30 minutes and help your team win, you know, over 30 games, that's, that's great. And if, if Jihad Proctor can do that for us, that would be, that would be fabulous. Um, but we also want to help him, you know, blend in, you know, to what we're doing. You know, we also want him to have a great summer and, and really help himself. But, you know, I, I think the rule, I, I wish the rule would go away, to be honest with you. You know, I, I just don't like those guys, you know, helping those guys, developing those guys. And then all of a sudden they leave their programs. But it's also something when you sit in the position that we are, um, you know, what do you want to have when you have a an opening that Carson Edwards leaves? You want to take another 18-year-old kid or do you want a 22-year-old that's played three years of college basketball that has a college degree? You know, I think that's an easy answer. And that's why a lot of people do it. And lastly, Matt, uh, the NCAA Rules Committee, I know this needs a final approval, but they're going forward with uh, moving that three-point line to the uh, FIBA distance of 22 feet, 1.7 inches, up from 20 feet, 9 inches. Uh, This has been discussed for a long time. I know you've been sort of uh, involved at different times with this kind of discussion. How do you think this will impact the game, especially next season, um, with the uh, increase in the distance of the three-point line? I think, first of all, it should encourage people who can shoot to keep shooting them. And it should encourage the people who can't shoot to stop. You know, I think more than anything, everybody has a guy or two on their team that just chomps at the bit and wants to shoot threes that really shouldn't. You know, the guy that shoots 52% from the line but still thinks he should shoot threes. You know, hopefully it helps him stop shoot threes to help his team. But, um, you know, I, I I had thoughts about it when it, you know, when it moved back about seven or eight years ago, whenever that was. And it really didn't have that much of an effect. You know, it probably helped a little bit in terms of spacing. Um, now it's, I, th- I think that's a little bit bigger jump, just especially from the initial one, but I think it should help a lot with spacing. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the percentages are, but I think in time, once guys work on it and, and you know, work on that distance, guys are shooting from that distance anyways. Not everybody's just right up on the line, but the people that are close you know, to it, I, I think that's going to affect them the most in terms of guys that are really trying to work towards being the three-point shooter, and then they haven't been. But hopefully, it gives us more spacing. You know, I wasn't for the the lane widening 
just because we, you know, we post up a lot and we, we will recruit guys that still post up. So I thought that would really kind of nullify some things in terms of those guys being able to post, really not nullify it, but just kind of decrease, you know, their, their spacing and their opportunities to post and, and be closer to the basket. But um, I, I don't think it's going to be that big of a difference. Um, once we adjust, I think there's always a little, when rules change, I think there's always some adjustment. I think once we adjust to it, I don't think there'll be that big a difference, but it will be interesting to see, you know, the percentages after year one. Yeah, there's no question. Carson uh, did not hug that line at all. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> not at all. It wouldn't affect, it wouldn't affect Klein and Carson. No, no, no not at all. all. Appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. All right, Andy. Thank you. See you. And coming up next on March Madness 365, my conversation with Auburn head coach, Bruce Pearl. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Auburn head coach, Bruce Pearl. And uh, Bruce, before we get to the roster and what where things stand here in May, got to look back. Uh, you guys were part of an unbelievable national semifinal. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, since we've had a month now, uh, how much have you had a chance to sort of still digest what occurred on that night in Minneapolis? Well, Andy, for me, I'm going to have a lifetime to digest the fact that Auburn was at the Final Four. And as you know, in our industry, it's March Madness. You know, it's it's the pinnacle of what our profession is. And I'm grateful and humbled and blessed. And we, we showed up. We belonged. We played some good basketball. Virginia was a great team and played great defense. And they were hard to guard. And they were a worthy champion. Um, as far as how it ended, um, trust me, I think you'll talk to most coaches. And what they'll tell you is we're way more accountable for the mistakes that we make more than the officials might make in the sense that there were two or three things that I, we should have done better differently. You know, we, we gave up a three late, we fouled on a three late. Um, we probably could have executed how we with fouls to give. Um, and that's how we, that's how we'll focus on it. And then the last thing would be this, you know, you have to handle the situation, whether it be in victory, you got to be a gracious winner. And then in defeat, you to, to complain about anything, take something away from the plays that Virginia made. And, and so that's why we, we handled it the way we handled it. No, you handled it unbelievably well. And it really was a model for how others should do so. But, you know, the tournament can work both ways. I mean, you could make a strong argument that in your first game against New Mexico State, <laughs> you guys were extremely fortunate that that game didn't go yep. into overtime uh, because they had a great chance to tie it and force an extra period. And then who knows? And who knows if this run ever happens? No, listen, you got to be good and you've got to have some blessing and some fortune along the way. There's no question about it. And we, we, we obviously felt like that, you know, for me, one of the things that I will always talk about is as it relates to fouls, if it's a foul in the first half, it's a foul in the second half, it's a foul in the game, it's a foul late in the game, referee that way. And I think the other thing that I would always say is if we're going to have points of emphasis, if we're going to call a game a certain way, and this is how we want the game called, let's call it that way throughout the season. Let's not, let's, if we're going to let the kids play, which I'm all for letting them play within the framework of the rules, then let them play all year. Don't let them play in the, because it's the final four and allow moving screens or allow, you know, teams to hedge out on ball screens and foul, but don't call it because they let them play. Um, if, unless that's not a foul. If it's not a foul, then then don't let it be a foul early in the season as well as late in the season. That would be the one thing. I think the last thing would be just we got to do a better job of continuing to make the game easier to officiate. I think they're looking for so many different things, and there's been so many changes and adjustments. 
that we're making it harder on officials. They're doing the very best they can. Uh, but those would be just a couple of pieces of advice that I would have. Uh, Chumo Kiki, I was there for that game. He was playing great before he suffered the knee injury. When you look back, how do you explain that your team was still able to knock off North Carolina and then beat Kentucky and then be within basically one possession of playing for the national championship, all without maybe your most productive player? I'll tell you what, it's a great lesson, and I learned it from Dr. Tom Davis. Depth matters. I mean, Andy, you've got to develop a bench, and uh, I've always believed in it. I think it played out, and we were rewarded from it this year. Part of the reason why is I mean, I've always been at places where, you know, my starting five may not have been as good as somebody else's starting five, but maybe our nine or 10 could be as good as uh, somebody else's nine or 10. My point is that um, you got to be able to go to your bench. So when, when Suma goes down, Daniel Purifoy steps in. When we rotate Samir Dowdy and off the bench for Malik Dumber, we don't drop off, we change. Javon McCormick's play late in the year was, was significant. Austin Wiley, who was never completely healthy all the way through the to have his ability to come off the bench. So by playing nine or ten guys, I think you have a healthier locker room. No, the guys that are coming off the bench would rather be starting, but can they accept their roles and understand their roles? And I think that as a result, we were fresh at the end of the year when other teams got tired. And when we had when we lost our best player, and he was our most valuable player. And it and 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 gosh, how we were able to hang on and beat North Carolina with Dangel's play, how we were able to beat Kentucky in that last because I felt like Kentucky was the best team in the tournament when healthy. Because I'm a big fan of what John did this year and that group. Gosh, I love this team. And um Jared Harper and Bryce Brown in the regional final were just so good. Uh, two upperclassmen that just put our team on their shoulders and made plays and got us to the Final Four. All right, so let's deal with the early entry decisions here you've got until May 29th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Chuma's one of those players, despite his injury, Jared Harper. Where do things stand about uh, you know how you're sort of managing this roster, not knowing whether or not they're going to come back? I think all are committed to staying. I think they're all committed to staying, and, and I think they should be. In Chuma's case, if Chuma was healthy, and right now he's hurt, so he can't go to the combine and play his way up or down the roster, but let's say he was healthy. If he was healthy, he goes to the workout, and he either plays his way into the middle of the first round, and if he doesn't, he knows he could come back the next year and, and, and really play his way in the lottery. The problem is he's hurt, Andy. Right now he's hurt. He should not last the first round if those guys know what they're doing. He should not. He's good enough to be in the first round. And I don't say that a lot of times about self-promoting our players. But if he were to come back, he's not going to be the same Chumo Kiki till late in the season. And so, therefore, I think he should stay in this draft. And let look, what they saw him do the last month of the season, March, that's the player they're going to get. And so I'm thinking and hoping that he stays. Uh, Jared Harper could come back. If he does, he breaks every record. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a preseason All-American. He should be. But I think Jared is ready to go in the sense that he is emotionally ready. He's physically ready. Um, he wants to start to be a professional. He's close to his degree. We'll bring him back when he gets done. Now, look, with Jared, you know, we're, we would be a great team. Again, without him, we'll still be good. Won't be as good. But if, if my job is to get them ready. My job is to get them there. And if, if he is mentally ready and physically ready, um, he should start his professional career. Where he goes, uh, he, he's invited to the G League Combine. Let's see if he can play his way into the 
you know, the, the, the NBA combine the next couple of days and hopefully he's got a chance to, to stick in this draft. Both kids are committed. So we're, we're, we're recruiting accordingly. All right. So let's assume for these purposes, they stay in. We already know, obviously Bryce Brown is gone as a senior with this current roster and who you have coming in, who are the big shot makers, the three point guys that, uh, you know, obviously that shot worked for you so well this past season. Well, we are recruiting. We have got one scholarship that I'm definitely committed to trying it to bring bring in a big time score, somebody that could um, handle some of that load. We get one guy like that, and then I think you add it to what we have, we're going to be fine. Javon McCormick, uh, a senior, Ty Jones, a freshman. I think they can come in. They'll handle the point guard duty. Samir Doughty can play one, two, and three, including a little backup point guard. I think Samir is a guy that could definitely make big shots for us. Uh, Daniel, our front line is going to be good. Our front line could be as good a front line there as there is in, in college basketball next year because you've got an undersized Isaac Okoro who is an Olympian-type player, an incredible athlete, Daniel Purifoy, Anthony McLemore, and Austin Wiley, all back for their senior year. Um, so I think the front line's there. The, the obviously, uh, you know, the biggest thing we need to replace is that is, that, is, is, is an impact score. Scheduling-wise, uh, making the Final Four, I know some of it's already predetermined. Uh, what have you been able to pick up, if anything, in terms of uh, sort of up games that could complement uh, what obviously you already have? You know, Andy, our formula has always been to try to play a couple games on the road um, in the non-conference, try to play you know three or four uh, neutral site games. So uh, we're going to be playing in, at, at Navy in that arm, the, the, the classic early in the year at Navy. I'm not sure what the name of that event is, but it's uh, uh, it's 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 an opener. We've got great experience for our kids. Uh, we're playing in, in the Legends Classic in, in Brooklyn, uh, Wisconsin, New Mexico State. Uh, I know we're, are in that field, Richmond, uh, good field. And then um, um, we always play in the Mike's Live Invitational. We're currently looking for a uh, a neutral side opponent. We're we're talking to a number of different teams, but as you know, Mike Mike lost his life to prostate cancer. We played in a sold out. Uh, Legacy Arena in Birmingham last year, uh, upwards of 15,000, 16,000 people uh, came to that game, and much of the proceeds went to benefit the Mike's Life Foundation for prostate cancer. Uh, so we're still looking for a neutral side opponent there. Well, we, we got the Big 12 Challenge coming up. So listen, Andy, you know, we got I got NC State coming in. As you know, I'm always going to play as tough a schedule as we possibly can. And Bruce, uh, on Friday, uh, I know it has to be official, but the, the Rules Committee past the three-point line, moving out to the international distance to 22 feet, 1.7 inches, uh, up from 20 feet, 9 inches. There were a few teams in the country that uh, used the three-point shot better than you guys, certainly at the right time in the NCAA tournament. How will moving that shot back two feet affect Auburn and college basketball? You know, Andy, I'm not sure. I think what you got you to – I do know that when they did move the line back when I was at Tennessee – we shot, we just shot about four or five fewer. And obviously for the first couple of years, it's going to lower their percentage uh, for the first few years. So you'll see less threes taken. You'll see the percentage take a dip. That's just, that's just, you know, human nature. That just makes sense. I'm not going to go away from it because I've always, you know, shot him more than everybody else. And we've spread it and shot it. That's still how we'll play. Uh, I do think it's got a chance to open the lane up. And I do think it's got a chance to maybe have you not have to guard a player or two on the perimeter. So therefore there could be more rotations, double teams on the perimeter, double teams in the post. I think it could give coaches a little bit more, uh, I think it's going to be interesting for teams that like to play zone and spread it. I think it'll help. Uh, it'll help a team like Syracuse and those big long teams that play a lot of zones. So, uh, I, listen, 
the key is to be able to adjust both to your personnel and the rule changes. And scratch, as, as my old friend Hayden Fry from Iowa say, you just got scratch where it itches. Well, Bruce, I appreciate it. I love your candor. And uh, as always, uh, you handle things exceptionally well. Well, Andy, thanks. And I appreciate being with you uh, on these podcasts because truly for me, as a guy that's spent a lot of time in Division Two and worked my way up, you know, to the high major level now, you know, um, there are certain milestones that you want to try to accomplish, you know, getting the NCAA tournament, advancing through the NCAA tournament, you know, and quite frankly, having being a coach in the country that you would think would be worthy of being on, the, on, on, on you know, your podcast to talk about the issues of college basketball. So I'm always grateful, Andy. Thank you. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. As always, you can find our podcast wherever you find your March Madness content on Twitter, Facebook, and your Turner Podcasts, iTunes, of course, as well. Thanks for listening.